Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, a really interesting conversation with Ruth Davidson who is retiring from frontline politics at the age of 42. Uh, probably interesting conversation about the future of the union and why people like me get things wrong about people in Scotland and Northern Ireland and everywhere else in between. And would she ever take a job in Boris Johnson's government? You don't want to miss that. So that's coming up in just a moment. But first, as our columnist panel, it's Thursday, so it must be night at the Marriott. It's India night and James Marriott, who missed the England football match because he was in the bath. I feel so embarrassed. I I didn't I didn't see it. You didn't watch. I was in the bath, James, for three hours. I, I not the entire three hours, but a substantial proportion of the three hours. Uh, so my football analysis is going to be uh, probably slightly lackluster. Your producers were trying to coach me about what to say. Right. Um, what, what, what were you What were you given? Should not have substituted Jack Grealish after twenty seven minutes. Very good. Said. Right. And yep. Oh, Complimentary things about Gareth Southgate. Apart from that, it's all gone. They were confusing gone. me. They're giving me too many lines. India. Kane knocked out the park. India. What, what, Kane knocked, very good. Very good. Uh, India, were you watching? I was absolutely watching. I was totally galvanised. I get these sporadic bursts of wild enthusiasm for football every every once every couple of years or so. And I was beside myself. And I'm still quite beside myself. Yes, I'm, I'm exactly the same. I can't follow a team normally. I haven't got the, the mental uh, bandwidth to uh, follow it. But I love a tournament. I do love a tournament. It's very exciting. But I fear that we are... Um, well, it actually... Because, James, you've, you've accidentally sort of... Your column in The Times today is on topic, even though you weren't actually watching the football, because you've written about patriotism. And uh, there's also been, you know, groundswells of, you know, lots of flag waving and what it means to be British, what it means to be English and all of that. But what's the what's your your main takeaway on, on patriotism? Yeah, it does. I think I, was, I think I was kind of absorbing the mental atmosphere because obviously there's the uh, Gareth South, Southgate essay on patriotism that um, pub- I think was published early this month. And he sort of um, 
I think this was sort of knocking around the back of my head because he was talking about how he thought um, the sort of important thing about English patriotism was to be sort of self-critical and, um, you know, uh, being proud of your country didn't have to stop you analysing things it did wrong. And I think that was sort of, um, that was sort of inspiring the column because um, it was about how um, I think English patriotism has a very, or in, the English, English English national culture has a very sort of long tradition of um, self-hatred and anti-patriotism that runs back, <laughs> I think, about kind of 300 years. So there's this new study from the Centre of Policy Studies that I think some people are getting a bit worked up about um, because there's sort of extraordinary percentages of people saying that, um, agreeing with, this, with statements like uh, Britain has failed its people and that we're an institutionally racist and discriminatory country. And I think people would think, and um, the guy who'd, who'd been running this poll, American pollster called Frank Luntz, said this sort of portended a chasm opening in British society and the basic argument of my column was that um English England has always been England and well specifically England also Britain have been always been quite self-hating there's always been a very strong uh, quite virulent strain of anti-patriotism uh that is kind of and that anti-patriotism kind of defines the way that British people are patriotic um as well basically if that makes sense I think it does make sense and it's because is it because when we view patriotism from other countries, I mean, America's the most obvious one, where it's all a bit over the top and a bit gushing and a bit soppy and American. And the sort of the, the stiff upper, the British stiff upper lip when applied to patriotism is it's sort of a quieter thing. Um, you, you know, it's not, not everyone has a flag in their garden. Uh, you know, not everyone stands for the national anthem uh, and all that sort of thing. So it may, maybe there's a sort of read across that. What do you think... Um, uh, India about our relationship, uh, the British relationship with patriotism. It's quite conflicted, isn't it? Um, you would talk. You just mentioned flags and gardens. Flags and gardens. This is a slight generalisation, but usually flags and England flags and gardens make me feel slightly uncomfortable. On the other hand, I would have really happily painted my face white and red last night. You know, so it's it's kind of a question of context. And there's the the, the thing that seems a shame about it is that kind of out-and-out, proud, slightly US-style patriotism has been claimed by a certain section of society that the rest of society quite likes to sneer at. So then it's not up for grabs anymore. It belongs to that that lot of people over there who aren't like us, and so we're wary of it. Whereas actually, I think, you know, there was nothing wrong whatsoever and pretty much everything right with the idea of being proud of the place that you come from and the place that has an awful lot going for it so it's very murky I think but I mean one of the glories of football is that all of that goes straight out of the window and everybody is just hysterically delighted at supporting their team wherever they sit on the kind of patriotism scale yeah it's sort of the great unifier that um uh football brings it so few other things do it that both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer can look terrible in photos while watching the football uh, and uh, try to display their own patches. But it's this weird thing in politics, isn't it? The, the, the Keir, one of the things that Keir Starmer's really grappling with is how patriotic mm. he should be, how, uh, you know, in trying to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn, who's seen as being unpatriotic, so he starts putting up flags at things and then people get cross about that and... Um, where do you think it plays into politics? What's the right amount of patriotism for politicians, Joe? So I think I think Boris Johnson's actually kind of pretty. I mean, I think obviously um, is pretty successful at playing with English patriotism because I think fundamentally mainstream English patriotism is always going to be a little bit self-deprecating, a little bit self-ironic. I think that's just how it works. And I think 
Boris Johnson sort of appears more natural. And he knows that for British people, uh, it's much easier to feel, you know, patriotic emotions looking at a sort of fat man hanging, hanging from a zip wire, waving two flags than it is, you know, with a very kind of heartfelt, sincere speech about how brilliant yes, the country exactly. is. And I think maybe what, what I sort of, what, what kind of Keir Starmer seems to get wrong is that he can't seem to sort of infuse that irony and that self-deprecation to his patriotism. And it seems like, you know, it sort of seems... Like he's taken the general idea of patriotism, but not understood how that particularly works in a British context. So it always seems a bit sort of too sincere and a bit too kind of um, a bit too straightforward. Whereas I think actually, I mean, apart from as India says, you know, that kind of slightly dodgy, um, more towards the far right, extremely sincere kind of patriotism. I think most British, most mainstream palatable British patriotism is always a bit sort of ironic and self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. And that's just the authentic way that it works uh, for kind of I think various historical reasons that. Um, in my column, um. <laughs> <laughs> but it also is it is it sort of is it I don't know if there's like a deference thing like that these days you know sort of patch people who sort of might say describe themselves as patch will, will love the Queen but might be a bit funny about the royal family as an institute you know we'll try to draw that separation you know um think that yeah, you can see that politics is very important you like your big Ben and all that but basically I've got a cynical view of politicians in a way that. Maybe because we don't have an elected head of state, you know, the the U.S. president is a is a and the French president or whatever is is a is the head of state as well, and so they're sort of slightly bound up in all of that. Yeah, and I I just think um, we have just because the kind of strange nature of um, of our country and for how long we've had these kind of um, traditions of tolerance of freedom of expression and a relatively free press, we just have this ancient tradition of you know, just being horrible and satirical about everyone who's in charge of us that go, you know, these go back about 300 years. <laughs> and I think for a lot of other countries, these things just aren't so deeply ingrained. But I mean, um, mm. in my column, I, I was sort of researching all the sort of really uh, extremely, well, justified, but very, very nasty and very funny stuff that Evan was saying about George IV uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. And they also, they're all sort of getting in various amounts of trouble for it. But we just have this like long tradition um, thanks to our free press of um, attacking the notions and attacking notions of patriotism, attacking the royal family, attacking senior politicians. And I just think that's now baked into the way that we think about ourselves as a country in a way that for countries that have only more recently had those kind of, you know, free press, free, freedom of expression, those things don't quite exist, you know, uh, in this, at the same depth in the national consciousness is, my, is what I think. Is it, are we also a bit confused, India, because uh, of actually the rise of uh, nationalism in Scotland and the... Uh, First independence referendum, the possibility of a second one, and the you know the, the uh, and then what's happened with Brexit uh, too, and actually people discovering that actually the idea that everyone thinks the same as you is not true anymore. And where you thought the part part of basically everyone thought that Britishness was whatever they thought it was personally, mm. and actually mm. you discover it isn't. And actually, you know, it, people who thought that you know proud Remainers and proud Leavers suddenly discovering that actually the entire country isn't quite what they thought it was. So James, you talk about you know the fact that. Uh, in France, uh, it's all uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, freedom in the United States. And, and in Britain, it's all queuing and roast beef and rain because that's sort of those are the sort of shared shared values that we can all agree on. But actually, what we've part of the reason why we're in a slightly weird position at the moment, India, is because we're going through a slightly existential self-doubt about what Britishness or Englishness means because of some of these big political events that have made us realise actually we're not all in the same in the same camp. Yes, and we're very disunited. I mean, I think James is really right also about the kind of um, uh, playful disrespect 
that uh, British people have towards figures of authority or figures of power. So, so, so that plays into it as well. But yes, certainly, um, you know, no, nobody agrees. People who thought that they were the same as their neighbour find themselves find their views diametrically opposed, and so they're left sort of slightly stranded, not knowing quite where to affiliate themselves. And so they fall back on these sort of old, quite cliched, but quite real things like, you know, cricket and roast beef and curry and and the thing and football and the things that that do actually unite us are quite little, really. Yeah, and that's that's the discussion. Which is why maybe we're, that, maybe that's why, apart from James, the entire country is clinging to football to mm. uh, <laughs> uh, to to unite ourselves. Are uh, you going to watch on Sunday, James? Surely. Yeah, do you know what? I, I will. I, I, was, I was actually in the, I was in the bath last night um, reading my book, and I could hear all these like joyful and then sometimes slightly pain-sounding screams echoing around my block of flats, and I was like. I think I am missing out on national moment here. This was quite stupid. I shouldn't be in the bath, um, but you know, you got it. You got it when you're in the bath. You got to take advantage of it and have a long soak. So I didn't want to spoil that. No, but, um, <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be uh, in front of, in front of my laptop. Well, you've had this week's bath now, so you don't need to worry about it. Too exactly. Much. Yeah, I know. Thank God. Uh, next Wednesday. So that's uh, that's totally fine. Um, let's uh, let leave James's bathing uh, for a moment, um, and let's talk about elephants, India, and uh, India elephants. Um, uh, this Carrie, Carrie John. Johnson, um, uh, announcing so the charity that she works for is going to fly 13 elephants from a zoo in Kent to live in the wild in Kenya. But Kenya's not entirely sure whether or not they want them. It's a really bonkers story. I read it yesterday and I thought, oh, that's nice, these elephants who live in eight acres, which isn't very much. It's like eight football pitches. It doesn't seem an awful lot for a herd of 13 giant African elephants. But anyway, uh, these elephants are going to be rewilded and they're going to be sent to Kenya. And obviously they're not just going to be kind of dumped out of their (laughs) container. They're going to be observed for a year and they're going to acclimatise and they're going to learn the ways of the land and then they're going to be rewilded. It turns out that... um, Nobody thinks this is a good idea. The Times today quotes Professor Keith Somerville of uh, the University of Kent, Durrell Institute of Conservation, who says the elephants are likely to die in the wild. Um, and also that the elephant population of Kenya has more. There's no there's no shortage of elephants in Kenya. The elephant population has doubled to 34,000 since 1989. And the elephants cause a problem because they trample all over crops and also water pumps. And so rural Kenyan communities aren't delighted with the existing elephants, let alone imported elephants that might peg it anyway, because they're used to the home counties. I mean, it's like it's like like transporting a home county's person to the rural Kenya and going off you go have a nice time go and play with the others you know it's it's kind of daft so um yeah weird story I don't know why they're doing it and also there's something very um white saviorish about um well-to-do uh, upper middle class white people in their nice charity going look Kenya we give you the gift of elephants and Kenyans going we don't want any more freaking elephants we've got 34,000 <laughs> we don't know what to do with them bonkers story it does it does strike me as, well maybe maybe it's, it's the only uh, 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 people that the government can currently uh, successfully deport so they've they've given <laughs> up their their immigration policies are such a mess they've given up on people and now they're turning their t- who 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 can we kick out the Kentish uh, elephants. The Kentish elephants. Um, this story is bonkers, isn't it, James? I was, I was, I was like um, India yesterday. I sort of barely registered it yesterday. Fine, that's nice. If that's where the elephants want to go, that's fine. And then it, <laughs> it just turns out Kenya don't want them. 
I just beg so many. One, like, how do you get an elephant on an aeroplane? You know, how many aeroplanes really does it take to transport that many elephants? I, I love the little detail. It was very sort of mournful, sad little detail about how the elephants um, from the home counties might struggle in Kenya because they don't have, and I think the phrase was institutional knowledge of uh, Kenyan geography, yes. which apparently, I mean, elephants obviously being extremely intelligent creatures, um, apparently seem to sort of pass on this sort of understanding and knowledge about the geography and, and where things are. And these poor home counties elephants will only know about, you know, the home counties and, I don't know, cricket pitches and things like that. And they're completely, um, <laughs> completely lost. They might, of... have, they might have the archers. They'll be completely at a loss. Uh, yes. They can't listen to the archers of the afternoon. They're going to feel very... Poor gonna... elephants. Maybe if we could send them a radio so they could listen to Radio 4. Um, or might... Times Radio. Or time... Or time... No, time... sorry, I've got Times Radio. Of course Times Radio. Of course they're not listening to Radio 4. For the Little Times Radio, <laughs> as all good elephants would. But it's a really good example, you know. I really, I'm really, I'm very opposed to zoos. I'm very opposed to animals in captivity. I think in the 21st century, there's absolutely no place for them in this country whatsoever. I think it's disgraceful that they still exist. But the argument they always trot out is their valuable conservation work. But actually, what are these animals doing in Kent in the first place? They shouldn't have. They should never have been to Kent. They should have stayed in Africa where they belong and where they're happy and where they can hang out with other elephants. And it's all a kind of ego trip. You know, there's no need for these elephants. I and mean, they, they need to stay in Kent now, I think we've established. But, 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 <laughs> but there's, no need, there's, there's no need to have captive animals, to have breeding programmes that aren't necessary. It does, uh, I do wonder whether the sort of Kent Kenya thing, maybe the whole thing is just a result of a typo yeah. somewhere on a form. Yeah. So that's how they ended up in Kent in the first place. But um, in the in the story in the Times this morning, I was reading that um, if they go to the Savo East National Park in Kenya, the, the water's got very high uh, salinity. saline. Yes, yeah. it's too salty, which poses risks to large animals not used to it. When the Kenya Wildlife Service started in June 2018 to relocate black rhinos from elsewhere in Kenya. They all died very quickly. So this could It's all, a disaster. The, whole... the elephants, they're trying to raise a million pounds to get the elephants to Kenya. And I think they should raise, you know, some money to keep the elephants in Kent <laughs> before they die of saline poisoning and plane trauma. India Knight and James Marriott there. Of course, you can read India in the Sunday Times, James in the Times on a Thursday. Just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is my interview with Ruth Davidson. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, this is my chat with former Conservative Party leader in Scotland, Ruth Davidson. 
politics, it seems, is a young man or woman's business. My next guest is retiring to the red leather benches of the House of Lords at the age of just 42. Ruth Davidson was the shovel-faced lesbian, her words, not mine, who swapped a career in radio and the territorial army for politics, then went from running the office of the Scottish Conservative leader to running for the top job herself and winning it, becoming the leader of the Scottish Conservatives after just six months in the Scottish Parliament. In the decade that followed, she more than doubled the number of Tories in Holyrood, helped take the number of Tory MPs north of the border from 1 to 13. She's also the, at the forefront of the campaign against independence in 2014, which she won, and the campaign against Brexit in 2016, which went less well. Tipped as a future Prime Minister, she instead quit frontline politics this year to dedicate time to her young family and will take that seat in the House of Lords later this year. Ruth Davison joins me now. Morning, Ruth. Morning to you, Matt. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm very good. Uh, You know, it's slightly later night than planned, but we are all all right. I suppose that is my first question, really. Were you up late last night celebrating the great victory for the union in the football? I was watching the football, actually, and uh, I I enjoyed it. It, I wasn't quite the silky game that we'd had the night before with Spain Italy but it was certainly frantic end-to-end stuff and, and absolutely congratulations to Gareth Southgate and the whole team it's a it's a, a really easy team to like and admire there is something that is true there is something about them that um that everyone seems to be able to uh get behind do, do you think that's I mean, the, the rest of the commentary and some of the outriders I could leave behind and the fact that within a minute of the final whistle we already went back to 1966 you know a little bit irritating let the boys have their moment that are on the park but in terms of the way they have conducted themselves you know there's just such nice young men you'd be you'd be proud to be any of their mothers <laughs> that yeah all fathers indeed anyway um uh so what what do you think when we are talking about uh, the union, when we see this this upswell of English patriotism, the uh, flag of St. George being, you know, flown across the country, you know, dominated on the TV and all that sort of thing. How is that viewed in Scotland? Well, I think I think it's, it's horses for courses, but it's, it's no different to the last Euros when Wales went on a great run. And, and actually people around the country were pretty, pretty happy for them. I, I think there was a lot of people in England and Wales and Northern Ireland they were actually quite pleased to see Scotland get to a major finals after being so long out of it. So, you know, I I think sport, uh, obviously there's competition and there's derbies and all the rest of it, but I I think sport is generally a a positive. And I think, to be honest, after the year we've all had, just being able to watch a European Championship for people that are football fans is good in and of itself. And with, uh, you know, real life fans actually there in the stadium as well, rather than sort of the piped in uh, fake uh, fan <laughs> noise as well. So go on then. Let's, let's, let's start with a nice, easy question. Where we are right now, July 2021, what state is the union in? You know, I, I think um, people tend to write it off at its peril. It's survived 300 years, but I think it's more than that. You know, we're... A G7 nation, we sit at the top three in, in lots of international organisations. We, I believe, are still a force for good in the world. Uh, I think, you know, that our, we've got lots that we can do. And I think that there's some of the really big issues that are happening now that require global leadership that we can stay a part of. And I think so something like COP26, which is going to be in Glasgow in November as part of the United Kingdom, uh, is a really big opportunity for us to show that we can still provide uh, uh, global teamwork and global leadership. And and I think people appreciate that. And um, you touched on um, Northern Ireland. We'll talk more about Scotland in a moment, but you touched on Northern Ireland there. Keir Starmer's in Northern Ireland today. 
Um, uh, I mean, he's he chosen the best date to get almost no coverage for that. Although he has written a piece in the Times about his trip today. Do you think that uh, the political class, the media class, pay enough attention to what's going you know, on? There's always lots of focus on on Scotland and Scottish independence and the future of the union there. Do you think we pay enough attention to what's going on in Northern Ireland? I don't, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. So first of all, because the kind of, the politics is different, the, the, the political parties are different. So it, it's not like the two big parties are uh, Labour versus the Tories over there. You've got, you know, Sinn Féin, the DUP, the UUP and the SDLP, plus Alliance actually that's put on lots in the last few years as a, a non kind of aligned uh, and non Sort of religiously aligned uh, party. Um, I think a lot gets missed. And, and I think there's been some really big politics in Northern Ireland that hasn't been covered in the way that it would have done if it had been in any other part of the United Kingdom and not just England, in, in any other part of the United Kingdom. So the kind of cash for ash scandal, I think the fact that the, the devolved assembly wasn't up and running for about two years and it, you know, that should have been at the top of the news and, and it barely made it after uh, you know, a water ski- skiing squirrel in the and finally section. Uh, I think the issues that we've seen within the DUP party of, of having a, a leader that lasted, you know, less than a fortnight and having to move on and the leader not being the first minister and all this other stuff. I mean, anywhere else in the United Kingdom, you would have had much greater scrutiny, interrogation and understanding. And I think there is a little bit of a worry that, um, you know, that, that, that we give up on the fact that it's an integral part of the United Kingdom and it matters. It really matters. And and yes, it's had a bit of coverage about the Brexit stuff, but but kind of only after it happened, part of the Brexit debate should have been more about looking at what the status of Northern Ireland would have been as part of the debate, not just uh, as people that, that um, had advocated it, won the referendum and then had to implement it, were scratching their head as to what to do with it. Do you think that uh, we are drifting toward, that Northern Ireland is drifting out of out of the Union? Do you worry about that? I think there's an awful lot of people in Northern Ireland that would think that that is exactly what a London-based commentator uh, would very easily throw off in a a radio question without thinking of of why that's a a very difficult, complex question and quite inflammatory question in some ways uh, to ask. So, you know, that's your scolding, Matt. Take it like a man. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But but I I do think, actually, and I've always thought, I I think in some ways... um, Scotland and, and, and Northern Ireland, while completely different, are, are also quite linked in many ways in the way that we both have different school systems from England and Wales. We both have uh, different legal systems from England and Wales. You know, there's there's some ways in which England and Wales is, is unitary. There's some ways in which Wales is different and it's got a devolved parliament. And I understand all of that and I understand devolution. But there's a lot of ways in which the institutions of England and Wales uh, are tied together and Scotland and, and Northern Ireland are different. And I think that it is helpful um, for both Scotland as part of the UK and Northern Ireland as part of the UK that there is another part of the UK that is different to England and Wales. Uh, and I do think that if one or other left, then then the other would feel more precarious. Now, helpfully, it doesn't look like that's about to happen anytime soon. And, you know, there's an awful lot of good people and uh, not just folk like me that, that had a platform and will continue in some ways to have a platform that will argue for it, but, you know, majority support across both countries for this. And and I think that's what commentators who are excited for a new shiny thing and for news sort of forget, that there is majority support for staying part of the United Kingdom. But I don't take that for granted, and we've got to make that case, you know, every day. So I've been told off for asking a dark question on Northern Ireland. Um, 
What? Let's, uh, turning our attention to Scottish politics. I'm not an expert, and I don't claim to be. No, Do you know? No, I, yeah, yeah, I could be. Uh, yeah, the last time I went over there, uh, I, I was incredibly scared because I, I went over actually just before or just after the gay marriage debate had happened everywhere, and I was invited over. This is they must have like thanked their lucky stars. I was invited over by Amnesty International to give their annual lecture for gay pride, and I think they've just gone down the list of Protestant unionists that were engaged to be married to. Republic of Ireland, you know, uh, Catholics, uh, which is my, my wife uh, or my, my partner, Jen, my fiance Jen is, is from Wexford. Uh, and just gone, oh my God, we found one. Let's have a talk about how <laughs> something like LGBT rights and, and equal marriage doesn't have to be a community-based issue. Uh, and, and actually, I was quite frightened, even as somebody that, that operated in, in, in Scotland every day, where there is a political language, where getting the words wrong can get you into trouble very easily. I was worried about going over there and, and, and you know, speaking. And it's very clear to speak only on my own behalf, to not try and impose, you know, my views on a, on a devolved administration. I understand the decisions that, that devolution encourage and that institutions have to be able to do that. And having people from elsewhere telling what to do is bad form. Got all of that. But I was a bit nervous. And I, and I think, you know, fair play to Keir Starmer for going over there today. Um, and, and I think there should be more of that. Um, what let's turn our attention to Scottish politics, which you do know about. What is the thing that? Uh, what is it about Scottish politics that people like me most misunderstand? Um, I think the the issue that people like you, um, and I say that in the broadest sense and without any sort of pejorativeness, uh, misunderstand is that the biggest issue on any given day isn't the constitution. It's the fact that people in Scotland care about their kids' school. They care about the fact that the, you know, COVID has affected the health service to the point that the backlogs are a mile long and, and you turn a corner and then are a mile further down the road. They care about the fact that actually, you know, there's some really good businesses that went under or there's people hanging by a threat. You know, you know the, the idea that, that Scotland is siloed and different, I think, is the... Is, is the big issue. And, and the idea that the constitution is the big Scottish issue all the time, it, it, it's just not. Like, people's lives matter in the same way as people's lives matter in Birmingham or, or whether they matter in, you know, Banffshire or whether they matter somewhere else. And whose fault is it that that... that is it because the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon are obsessed with uh, talking about the constitution? Is it because, actually, you you built... Part of the reason you, you did so well electorally was quite often by banging on about the constitution and saying that you were the ones who were going to stop, uh, you know, put a halt to that um, uh, um, drive towards uh, independence. Who, who's to blame for that, that being the, the apparent dominant um, issue in Scotland? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that's to blame for it, but in terms of the fact that, a, a, you know, a, an interviewer from somewhere, will that will be their immediate first question or the first topic of discussion. Um, I think it's because, you know, Scottish independence referendum was a really big issue. It was a, it was a you know, a global issue in terms of, of, of news coverage. Um, but there was a decision that was made. And I, I think maybe not understanding or, you know, the SNP are very good. You know, they're the government of, of Scotland. They have the biggest microphone. Uh, they use that microphone every day uh, to suggest that Scotland is just on the brink of breaking away. Uh, and that it's in our interest to do so and that we hate Westminster and all the rest of it. And actually, that narrative is not the narrative of most Scots. And I think making that distinction that it is in the SNP's interest to buy into that narrative is something that 
other uh, broadcasters should consider if, if your original question is about what do you guys get wrong? That would be my plea. Oh, very good. Well, well, instead, I am actually going to ask about um, the the possibility of a, of, a, of an independence referendum because it is all. It's not. When do you think? Because you know Nicola Sturgeon better than you know. You've seen her up close. Uh, you probably know her better than most. Certainly, for, you know people outside the yeah. SNP. Um, when do you think she'll bring forward her demand for a second independence? It seems like a question of when, not if. Uh, given what happened in the elections, when do you think she will do it? Or do you, or do you Matt, think can I just, I'm, I'm going to run to just a second and open this door to let my dog out and I will answer <laughs> that question for you. Sorry. That's the most uh, elaborate he's, he's, excuse he's his, to not answer a question. He was doing his dinner back there. Uh, so, so yeah, so it's, it's not like that BBC one for a, for a, <laughs> for a toddler comes in, but um, I've got a small uh, Cocker Spaniel who was, who was going wild about something back there. So let me just answer your question. So when will she bring it forward? Yeah. You know, you, you pick a date. She should already, she'd already, you know, agitated for it, called for it, asked for it like a, a million times. So a week next Tuesday, if you want. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, momentum or, I, I don't know, narrative or whatever, um, I find it really odd that, again, UK commentators think that having not won a majority in the election just there gives her any more rights or platform or whatever to have one than not winning a majority in 2016 and she didn't have one for those five years so you know I think um, I, I don't see uh, a, a independence referendum anytime in in this period of the Scottish Parliament. You you uh, obviously were a key player in the the first Better Together campaign um, mm. as and when there is another one would you step forward again? I'll always um, make sure that I I'm make myself as useful as I can be. I mean, I honestly think that the next, if there is another independence referendum campaign, it'll be so far down the tracks that uh, I'll be an old dinosaur and there'll be a whole generation of politicians that, that don't want people like me hanging around. Who are um, they though? Because but... there aren't, isn't part of the problem that they're better together, you know, last time around it was Gordon Brown, it was Alistair Darling, it was yourself. Um, uh, I'd like to think are... I'm in a slightly different political generation to well, Alistair Brown. I mean, if, 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 if right. they've gone, you've gone. Who are the other people? Who are the people who are going to mount the the pro union uh, campaign? Well, like I say, I mean, you look at Boris Douglas Johnson. Ross, you look at Anna Sarwar, you look at you know, um, in, in terms of continuity, better together. Uh, you've got Willie Reddy there from the Liberal Democrats, <laughs> but but also you know a hundred other flowers from within the majority support population. You what, know, about, it, what about Boris? Not Johnson? only did we decide to stay, there is still majority support to stay, and and I think that point's never made enough. What what about Boris Johnson? If 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 a refer- second independence referendum happened while Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, well, it- I just I just don't see that that I mean I I understand why you're asking me a hypothetical question, but I don't see that hypothesis ever coming to pass, genuinely ever coming to pass. You just don't think there's... The man has an 80-seat majority based on a manifesto pledge not to have one. I know, but manifesto pledges, as we know, only last up until the point that they don't. As, uh, you know, um, I know you, you the, the question of foreign aid, uh, you know, that was a manifesto pledge and that hasn't, uh, hasn't um, uh, held up. Matt, are you honestly trying to argue with me that... Boris Johnson is going to rule over 
the next 15 times Nicola Sturgeon asks for an independence referendum? No, I'm just, ma- I'm just making... Is that, is that your actual question? I'm just making the point. <laughs> is sometimes, that your actual argument? Sometimes <laughs> Boris Johnson's uh, enthusiasm for sticking to public promises is not... Uh, d- it varies depending on the issue, but I, I take your point. that On the question right. of uh, Scottish in- on, uh, independence <laughs> referendum, he's probably uh, got it more likely to, uh, to uh, be wedded to that one. The interesting thing on Nicola Sturgeon, this is an interesting question, is that, and we were talking about this um, uh, earlier, um, she's still riding high in the polls. Uh, she obviously did amazingly well in the uh, elections, albeit not getting the, the majority that she might have hoped for. Um, on the back of overseeing a, a uh, an outcome to the coronavirus pandemic, which is comparable to what's happened in England under Boris Johnson. And actually, right now, we're seeing cases surging in Scotland. It's one of the worst um, uh, infection rates in Europe. What's go- What's going on in Scotland? Why... Why, on the one hand, you've got this sort of, you know, everyone praises Nicola Sturgeon for handling it so well, and yet something seems to be going wrong in Scotland. Well, I I think there was enormous hubris uh, over the last sort of year or so from the SNP in thinking and declaring things like, you know, we're practically COVID-free and all this other sort of stuff, Uh, or or thinking that a a pandemic, that a virus that pays no respect to to boundaries or political systems... um, would somehow not affect Scotland in the same way um, if the SNP just got their comms right and made the same decisions as the rest of the UK, but about three weeks later. And, and that's what we've seen. And, and you know, possibly um, there might have been a hope that our hugely different demography, so, so sort of things like population density, uh, is different. You know, we've got a third of the landmass of the UK, but only sort of 8% of the population, that that might have been enough to see us through or whatever. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think there was monumental hubris there. And, and I think that some of the big decisions the SNP did get wrong. So, you know, from the top of the party, uh, from Ian Blackford and Nicola Sturgeon, right the way down to, you know, your, your kind of Twitter warriors, everybody was shouting about the fact that the UK government was um, making a terrible decision and not going to be part of the EU uh, vaccine procurement programme, that this was going to cost lives, that it was Brexiteer madness, that, you know, I mean, screaming blue murder on stuff like that. And and actually, one of the things that has been the real shining point uh, in this has been the vaccine programme. And, and you know, I, I think, I also think politicians are, are too quick to pat themselves on the back about that. I mean, that is a whole lot of decision-making, procurement, and all the rest of it that happened by people who aren't in professional politics and delivery and rollout and logistics and all the rest of it. However, I think where the politicians did get it right was making the decision and giving the resource to allow it to happen and finding someone in Kate Bingham that knew how to do it. Yeah, and I think that that's, yeah, that they take the credit for the good stuff and then try to shift uh, uh, the back. Just the last few minutes that we've got with Davidson, I wanted to ask you about what you're going to do next because you were riding high as the leader of the Scottish Conservatives and then you stepped away um, because you've got a young family. And I just wondered what, first of all, uh, what's wrong with our politics that someone has to choose in this day and age between having a family and essentially serving their country, serving their party and, and being part of the political process? Well, I think to put a couple of things on on, on record. So I stepped away as, as leader in 2019, in August 2019. So that was almost two years ago and have continued to serve, you know, in Parliament with a young son in, in the two years since then. Um, so it's not like you can't be a politician and have kids. Like, I, I think I've demonstrated that you can do both. However, things did change. And I was very clear at the point at which I stood down that, yes, a lot of it was personal, but there was also political as well um, in terms of, 
Uh, I was very conflicted over the Brexit process and what was going to happen next. I could see a general election looming in 2019 that I wasn't in a position uh, to either be the best spokesperson for my party in Scotland uh, or to be able to do that and be the best mum that I wanted to be. Uh, and that after eight years, having been the longest serving political leader of the Scottish Conservatives I'd ever had post-devolution, uh, and I think possibly other than Alex Salmond uh, and Willie Rennie from the Lib Dems being the longest political leader at that time of any party, you know, I was knackered. I was, I was, <laughs> I was done. And if you can't do the job as well as you, the standards you've set yourself, if you can no longer do it, you have to make a decision. Are you happy to do a job less well or do you let somebody else who's got the energy and the drive and the vision come in and take over and take the party somewhere else and, and step away and choose to do other things and, and do them to the best of your ability? And, and it was a tough decision, don't get me wrong. And there have been times in the last two years that I thought, you know, maybe I should have stuck it out or maybe I could go back or whatever. But, um, but it was the right decision. And, and those are less and less frequent thoughts. Uh, and it was, it's funny, one of your other guests in the show, Amber Rudd, I, uh, I spoke to her last week on some podcast thing. And there's two types of politician we were discussing. The ones who step away and or are, you know, voted out or whatever, or are sacked, and who are so desperate to come back. That's like like what they live and breathe and they just think about politics and, you know, it's their drive and they have to speak at dinner parties about how everybody else is getting things wrong. And if only they were back, they would all be right. And then there's the ones that, that aren't involved anymore for whom it turns out it is a bit of a release and a relief. And it gives you a lightness of being and a freedom that you, you didn't know that you were restricted by because, you know, I loved being Tory leader. It was a great job. Um, I enjoyed doing it until I didn't. And it turns out both Amber and I are the second type. Uh, and this giddy freedom that I have uh, is, um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I'll get past it. But at the moment, it's kind of nice. Well, you've had a, you had a couple of years. You've had a couple of years break now. You're about to take a seat in the House of Lords, and then you're going to join Boris Johnson's uh, cabinet as no, Scotland Secretary. Aren't wait, you? wait, 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 wait a second. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, you say a couple of years break. I have well, also been sitting uh, as an been. MSP. You've been an MSP uh, and, and came back to help the new leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, and, and helped in the election. So like, it's not like I was watching daytime telly for the last two There's years, all right? Or listening to daytime uh, radio, which is also fun. <laughs> But now you're going to come back as Boris Johnson's Scotland Secretary, is that right? Not a chance. And why is that? Because you kill well, you still one, can't because stand I, I promised, No, one, because I promised my partner. Well, one, because Alistair Jack is doing the job of Scottish Secretary very well. Thank you very much. Yep. Two, because I promised my partner when I stepped away two years ago that I wouldn't do any big jobs until my son and if we're blessed with any other younger brothers or sisters for them uh, are in school uh, and I intend to keep that promise lord knows in sort of 10 years of the political front line I've broken enough promises to my friends and family like that's what I intend to keep uh, and also because of my political journey of becoming the leader in Holyrood basically as soon as I got elected I missed out on and I didn't learn my trade on the back benches and I made lots of mistakes because of that and I'm actually looking when I go to the Lords to pick some projects to work on, to do some good work um, and to learn. Uh, and actually, at the age of 42, I'm going to really enjoy learning again. Um, is there any circumstance that you would take a job in a Boris Johnson government? Do you like Boris Johnson? Do you trust him? Do you think he's up to the job of being Prime Minister? Well, look, I, you know, I think that Boris Johnson is a, a very likeable guy when you're in his company. Uh, he is affable he's humorous he's intelligent he's warm uh 
you know, he's he's a very forgiving man. He, you know, you'll see how many people he's invited back and, and all the rest of it. Um, in terms of some of the political priorities he has, he's not from my wing of the Conservative Party. And, I, you know, I voted for other people in the leadership election. Um, but I want him to do well. Uh, and the reason I want him to do well is because when prime ministers do well, the government does well. Um, but like I say, you know, I, I am not arrogant enough to think that him doing well is dependent on me taking a job with him. I don't think it has anything to do with it. I, I don't think that one has any relation to the other. So, you know, like I say, I want him to do well. Uh, I made a promise to my wife who's entirely more scary than Boris Johnson is, and I intend to keep that promise. Well, there we are. That's, that's, I think we know where you stand on that. Just finally, uh, this I think it's this week is five years since you delivered what I think is still one of the best jokes I've ever heard from a politician. This was in the wake of the Brexit referendum. I think the really mad thing in, in all of the last few weeks is that the last man standing is Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, <laughs> although I am pleased to hear that the PLP is about to show how united they are by launching possibly a second unity candidate against the first. Um, and all of this has happened in the time that it takes Theresa to create, take the crown. And I think that's kind of the difference between our, our two parties, Jess. You know, Labour is still fumbling with its flies while the Tories are enjoying their post-coitus cigarettes. Um, <laughs> after withdrawing our massive Johnson. Um... After withdrawing our massive Johnson. Ruth Davidson, you, I mean, if nothing else, maybe you should just go into comedy full-time. Basically, Can I our... explain that? Can I explain that? <laughs> I, I've never actually been, because I'd, I've never operated in Westminster, I've never been to a Westminster lobby correspondence uh, lunch. And I was in seeing David Cameron before I went over to it. And he was asking me what I was doing while I was down. And I said I was doing this. And he said, oh, I don't know, it's fine. So what you need to do is, you know, take in a policy, take in a joke and, uh, you know, make sure that it's, you know, it's a bit risky and you'll, you'll be fine. Now, it turns out his idea of a risky joke uh, from <laughs> the, the cloister upbringings that he has in mine, it turns out it's very different. And I didn't know it was on the record because the, the lobby stuff, in Scotland isn't so that I fully hold my hands up had I thought that it was happening under the oh, parameters no, that I thought good. it was I would never have made that joke it was well it's a very very funny joke so I just wanted to ask you five years ago you were Tory lead Scottish Tory leader Theresa May was about to become Prime Minister Boris Johnson dead in the water Jeremy Corbyn on the up what do you think politics looks like in five years from now that's it I mean I, you know I, you know ask Nostradamus ask Mystic Meg <laughs> who knows politics has been mental for years like if you think if somebody tells you they knows what's going to happen next they're lying that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from? <laughs> 